Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History and Medieval History Groups. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History and Medieval History Groups, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. Robin Hood In this talk, David Simpson investigates three key questions. Who was Robin Hood? Where was Robin Hood? And when was Robin Hood? Few legends retain such a hold on our popular imagination than that of Robin Hood. Only King Arthur comes close in surpassing him in the pantheon of British mythological heroes. Robin is so ingrained in international folklore that similar characters from other geographies are described as the Robin Hood of India, France or Germany. These Robin Hoods are always to be found fighting invasion from a foreign oppressor which, as we will see, may well echo one of the origin stories of Robin himself. We all know the story, how Robin of Loxley, disinherited by the evil Sheriff of Nottingham, retreated into Sherwood Forest. There he gathered around him a gang of fellow outlaws known as the Merry Men. Becoming Robin Hood, he stole from the rich and gave to the poor. He then joined the rebellion against Prince John, who was threatening to usurp the throne from Richard the Lionheart. Emerging victorious, he kills the sheriff, finds Richard, and marries Maid Marian, and they all lived happily ever after, as they do in all good fairy stories. And I'm afraid that's all most of it is. And a lot of that story was in fact first written in the 15th rather than the 12th century, as you might have expected. While I may painfully shatter a few illusions in today's talk, hopefully it will also open up new areas for your own personal historical investigation. The Robin Hood stories first emerge after the ballads of the High Middle Ages, and by the 21st century he has come to represent a playful and cunning resistance to corruption and injustice by robbing the rich and giving to the poor. But when those early ballads of the 13th century first began to fix the myth in the British psyche, Robin was in fact a totally different character. The original Robin was brutish and selfish, with a smattering of more honourable traits. Think Clint Eastwood in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Robin was an anti-hero, loved by the poor and loathed by the authorities. In fact, the term Robin Hood became used as a derogatory one, used to describe a real baden. For example, the Earl of Salisbury in 1605 described Guido Fawkes as a Robin Hood. When thinking of Robin, it is therefore better to think less Errol Flynn and more Al Pacino in The Godfather, as there is extraordinarily little evidence of a benevolent bandit. Rather, he is a cutthroat at the head of a pack of outlaws. But is there any fact in the fiction? Some historians are confident enough to name names and to offer compelling arguments that there may just actually be an actual individual who might be the blueprint for Robin. But before I go on, I want to mention a concept that historian Sean McGlynn has called the hero-outlaw paradox. Robin 
is both hero and villain. But too much of either robs Robin of that certain je ne sais quoi. He needs to be both good and bad in equal measure, which is a conundrum when identifying any individual. Perhaps the early ballads were also dependent on your point of view. Was Robin cheered by some, but booed by others? Bear this in mind when we look at those linked with Robin later. But for now, let's look at the historical background to the Robin Hood stories. Robin's stories are all set between the 12th and 14th century, a period bracketed by the Norman invasion of 1066 and the start of the Hundred Years' War in 1337. This period in British history is dominated by the feudal system and the growth of the power of the nobility as they attempted to wrest influence from the crown in the First Barons' War, 1215 to 1217, and the Second Barons' War, 1264 to 1267. As well as the crown and nobility, the third powerful body in the English establishment was the church, and this period sees it becoming an important landowner and extremely wealthy and very unpopular with many of the lower classes. Another factor throughout this period is the replacement of Saxon and Romano-British social structures with normal ones. After 1066, the Saxon and British nobility were deposed and replaced by a Norman elite. This led to a divide between the Norman nobles and the Saxon and British yeomanry and peasants. This divide can be seen in many ways, including farm animal names, usually Saxon, because they farmed them, and the meat consumed, usually French, because they ate them. For example, pork versus pig, or beef versus cow. This division also extended to the landscape, with the creation of the royal forests and the imposition of forest law. Forest, in fact, became a legal term to define an area of country that was the sole preserve of the crown and within which poaching was a punishable offence. The first forest laws appear in 1100, which criminalised the hunting of, and I quote, creatures of the chase. It also forbade the cutting down of trees, clearing undergrowth, and carrying bows and spears. Forests were controlled by keepers, foresters and agitators. For the local Saxon population, they represented the iron hand of the Norman state. The forest laws were seen by many as the ultimate reminder of the division between ruler and ruled, between those hunting deer for sport and those hunting deer for food. As an aside, the forest laws are also why we have the Magna Carta rather than the more boring sounding Articles of the Barons. It was the Articles of the Barons that were signed at Runnymede in 1215. The forest laws were then hived off onto their own small charter a couple of years later, leaving the big charter, or Magna Carta, to history. Punishment for disobeying the forest laws was brutal. Blinding, castration and death were the punishments for poaching until the Magna Carta specifically ruled out mutilation and death. After that, Punishments became financial rather than physical, but no less onerous, with fines of five old pence, about 18 pounds in today's money, for cutting down a tree. Now this does not sound too much, but most people lived a subsistence existence, and money was not in a ready supply. Even for those who did earn a wage, five old pence was roughly equivalent to one week's wages in 1300. A later layer, is the impact of the Black Death on the population of England. Between 1348 and 1450, the population had halved, leading to an upswing in the wages and conditions of the surviving working classes. Every cloud has a silver lining. 
The downside, though, was with the ending of the Hundred Years' War, when roaming bands of ex-soldiers now caused chaos as they turned to crime. The power of the monarchy was also eroded by the reign of the ineffectual Henry VI. Unrest turned to rebellion, such as the one led by Jack Cade in 1450, and it is against this backdrop of unrest that the early Robin Hood ballads first appear. So what is the historical evidence for Robin? When was he? Where was he? And probably most importantly of all, who was he? So let's start with examining the name. What doesn't help in the search for a real Robin is the fact that Robin Hood was used as a nickname to describe notorious outlaws from the 13th century onwards. Hood was quite a common surname, as was Robert for a first name. Robin is just a diminutive of Robert. There are just too many to narrow down our search. If you then add in that Robin Hood, or one word, was also a surname that can be traced back to the 12th century, then it's really difficult to actually identify a real person. Some historians have therefore tried to limit that search by concentrating on criminals bearing that name. Now an interesting fact is that many of the criminal Robin Hoods on the records are based in the south of England rather than in the East Midlands. And that means that the legend must have become national by the second half of the 13th century. Certainly by the 1260s, it has become an undergur for the criminal underclass. Robin Hood also gets a mention in William Langland's 1377 Pierce Plowman, where Sloth admits that he knows the Robin Hood ballads rather better than he does the Lord's Prayer. The original Robin Hood, therefore, can be no earlier than the late 12th and no later than the mid-14th centuries. So where do we start looking for the original Robin Hood? The earliest mention of an outlaw called Robert Hood is in about 1216, when he's charged with murder. But there is nothing in this story that would place him as the original Robin, in that this Robert was a servant to the abbot of Sirencester Abbey, rather than a bow-wielding, forest-dwelling outlaw. Another criminal touted as the original Robin is Robert Hodd, who appears in court records in 1226. What makes this Robert interesting is that the Sheriff of Yorkshire at this time later became the High Sheriff of Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire in 1232. This Robert, though, is a particularly nasty thug who appears no less than 10 times in the pipe rolls between 1225 and 1234. Now, the first reference to Robin Hood as a criminal surname comes in 1261, when a certain William Lefebvre is charged under the name William Robin Hood for larceny in Berkshire. But there's nothing about either of these characters that would attract the storytellers. But remember, in those early stories, Robin is no goody two-shoes, Rather, he is a hardened villain. Perhaps these may be our ground zero for Robin after all. Personally, I doubt it, as the hero-villain paradox, I think, needs a hero as much as he does a villain. Hood historians have therefore continually looked for various criminal Roberts to try to find the original Robin. But this strikes me as being a fool's errand, when Robert is such a common first name. Then when you add in that Robin of the Hood is a play on words for an outlaw hiding his identity, in a period known for its poets and balladeers to play such word games. It becomes clear to me that the name Robin Hood tells us extraordinary little, other than it was a common name with associations to the criminal classes. In my opinion, there never was an actual Robin Hood, rather it was a name given to outlaws. So if the name is a bit of a red herring, where do we go next? An interesting question to ask isn't who Robin was, but rather when Robin was. The stories that have come down the years seem quite clear. According to folklore, Robin was active during the 27 years of the reigns of King Richard I, 
between 1189 and 1199, and his brother King John, 1199 to 1216. More specifically, Robin was active between 1192 and 1194, when Richard I was held captive by Duke Leopold of Austria, and later by the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry VI. Except, these stories rely solely on 15th and 16th century sources. In fact, pinning a date on Robin is as difficult as there are stories of characters that sound very much like Robin that span well over 100 years, from the late 12th to the mid-14th century. By the middle of the 15th century, the legend of Robin Hood was well known enough to be used in Norfolk in 1441 as a rallying cry for the disaffected poor to justify their actions in threatening to kill the local gentry. To them, Robin offered a morally acceptable solution to their problems. Local corruption could be turned asunder by violent actions. Later, in 1450, the Jack Cade Rebellion saw several rebel captains in the south of England identify themselves as Robin Hood. The problem with all these chronicles that mention Robin is they are from the 15th century, even if they refer to earlier dates, so their accuracy must be called into question. But there is something in the chronicles of Walter Bauer that might just hold a germ of truth. Bauer mentions Robin as being active in the mid-1260s, and this fits neatly into the aftermath of the Second Barons' War that was led by Simon de Montfort. The supporters of de Montfort, who died at the Battle of Evesham in, in 1265, were hounded by the victorious supporters of Henry III, and many were disinherited. They then took to a life of crime, and one of these may well be our leading contender for the development of the Robin Hood legend. More about him later. But, but hang on. What about Robin's connections to Richard the Lionheart? Scottish chronicler John Major, no, not that John Major, is responsible for why we so readily connect Robin with Richard I. This John Major had his chronicles published in 1521, and it is he who first links Robin and Richard, a linkage that has come to dominate our view of when Robin was active. Even as early as the late 16th century, people were accepting this connection. For example, playwrights such as Anthony Mundy were writing plays using this association, and it had become accepted as truth by the time Walter Scott was writing Ivanhoe, and is now so deeply ingrained in the nation's psyche that nearly every film and TV series in the last 100 years reinforces it as fact. John Major also plays a role in popularising the myth of Robin as the robber of the rich who gave to the poor. There is nothing not one line in the early literary sources that connects Robin with such charitable intentions. In fact, the early Robin in the ballads is portrayed as much as a thief and a murderer as he is a writer of wrongs. Okay, so if you can't always agree who Robin was, or when Robin was, then surely we all know where Robin was, don't we? Well, you'll be glad to know that he does seem to be associated with both Sherwood Forest and Barnstale Forest. There is a family by the surnamed Hood who are actually still associated with the area around Barnsdale Forest. And while they can trace their family history back to the 1200s, there is absolutely no connection to our Robin Hood. Now this connection with forests also makes sense in that Robin was supposed to have a large band with him, about 120 to 150 men. And where better than in a forest to hide them? Also, in the medieval chronicles, there is a specific name for outlaws who are found hiding in the woods, and that is Sylvatici. 
and that is a name often connected with Robin. Soon after 1066, Sherwood Forest was designated a royal forest, covering over 100,000 acres and including the Royal Palace of Clipstone. Now the Palace of Clipstone is where eight of the kings from Henry II to Richard II visited. Sherwood wasn't just woodland. It also included monastic establishments, small communities, and industrial use such as charcoal production. The Great North Road also ran straight through it. It was therefore ideal territory for those living outside the law. However, an issue has been raised recently with linking Robin to either Barnsdale or Sherwood Forest, and that is they were probably too small by the 13th century to realistically hide Robin and his band of men. They might have been relatively safe in the height of summer, with the leaves full on the trees, but in the middle of winter, all the sheriff needed to do would be to keep a lookout for smoke coming from the fires needed to cook food and to keep everybody warm. I'm surely that was not too taxing a job. Also, if the areas of these two forests was too small to hide the outlaws, then there was probably equally too small an area to provide sufficient ambush points. If the same spots were used time and time again, then the sheriff could anticipate Robin's actions and easily catch him red-handed. But why is there this insistence that Robin is connected with Sherwood and Barnsdale forests? And that's because they are the locations specifically used in all the original ballads. But if the ballads are not able to tell us accurately who Robin was, or when Robin was, why should we believe them as to where Robin was? After all, they're entertainment, they're not a documentary. And in fact, there is some evidence in the use of the name Robin Hood to suggest that Robin could just as easily be associated with Kent, Berkshire or even Dorset. You know what you're saying? There's all these locations around Nottingham area that are specifically connected with Robin. So what about them? What's their history? There is an enduring myth that as Robin lay dying, he fired an arrow and asked Little John to bury him where it landed. One suggestion for this location is near the ruins of Kirkley's Priory in Barnsdale Forest. Unfortunately, the earliest reference to this spot is only in a 17th century chronicle, which names Robin as the Earl of Huntingdon, and appears to echo the 16th century plays that similarly link Robin to the nobility. The second place, of course, is the Major Oak in Sherwood Forest, near the village of Edenstow. Folklore has this as Robin's forest throne, but there are serious doubts about its age. It may only be 800 years old, in which case it would have been a minor oak when Robin was active. The major oak, though, is the biggest oak tree in Britain, with a canopy of well over 28 metres, a trunk circumference of 11 metres, and an estimated weight of 23 tonnes. That's one big tree. Although it's undeniably big, that's not why it's called the major oak. In 1790, soldier and antiquarian Major Heyman Rook authored a book detailing the oak tree of the area and people began to refer to it as the Major Oak. The third place that's connected to Robin is his famous well. This is in Skellow in South Yorkshire in what was once Barnsdale Forest. Now its current location isn't exactly where it was. It was moved about 100 metres when the A1M was built. However, it was only named as Robin's Hood's Well in the 18th century by the third Earl of Carlisle. So if you don't know who Robin was, when Robin was, or even where Robin was, is there any evidence of a real man behind the tights? 
Well, 15th century chroniclers such as Walter Bauer talk of Robin as a real person who was active sometime in the 13th century, but offer little evidence to back up the claim. And this is the problem. The historiography of Robin is based solely on ballads written during the 14th and 15th centuries. But just like King Arthur, there are tantalising wisps of fact in the fog of myth. Who might have been Robin? There are several outlaws that historians have identified who may have been the inspiration for the ballads and early stories. But a key question we must be aware of is, did these flesh and blood characters contribute to the development of the myth? Or is there, hidden somewhere in the mists of time, an actual genesis of the myth? Someone not named Robin Hood, but maybe the starting point for the legend. The actual starting point must be that they were acted by the mid-13th century at the latest. This is because the first use of the name Robin Hood to describe an outlaw is in 1262 in a Berkshire court. Anyone who came to prominence after about 1260 cannot therefore be considered as ground zero in our hunt for Robin. In addition, Robin must be of Saxon extraction and a member of the yeomanry or peasantry. From the many suspects, and there are many suspects, that have been identified by some serious historians, I have chosen just four who may be the original inspiration for Robin. However, if the search for Robin was this easy, then he would have been found many years ago. Each of the four that I will go through have some serious issues when you held up their story against the facts that we know. And to top it all, none of them are called Robin and none of them are called Hood. This name is, in my opinion, just made up by the Balladeers as a play on words. However, each of the four that I am going to mention, I believe, are part of our Robin. Because I think, like King Arthur, Robin Hood is a composite figure made up of several individuals that the Balladeers pulled into one legend. The first one I want to mention is a nice gentleman called Roger Godbird. Now, Roger led a band of highwaymen in the 13th century, and they were active along the Great North Road, and has been championed as the real Robin Hood by David Baldwin in his 2011 book, Robin Hood, The English Outlaw Unmasked. Now, Roger lived sometime around 1230 to 1290, and he did have close connections to Nottingham. He served in his garrison, and was later held there as a prisoner of the Sheriff of Nottingham. Now, Roger fought for Simon de Montfort in the Second Barons' War, when Barons sought to force Henry III to rule with a council of barons rather than through his favourites. But de Montfort was killed at the Battle of Esham in 1265. Roger Godbird, from that date on, began a guerrilla war throughout the East Midlands, and in 1270 struck as far south as Stanley Abbey in Wiltshire, that saw horses, money and valuables taken, and at least one monk killed. Finally captured in 1272 by royalist forces, Roger somehow escapes execution. We then lose sight of Roger in the official records until about 1287, when Roger pops up accused of poaching in Sherwood Forest. While there is a clear link with the Robin Hood stories, Roger is active in Nottinghamshire, accused of poaching in Sherwood Forest, has a clear dislike of the king and religious houses. There are just enough details to render Roger as not being the precursor of Robin. For example, there is no resolution of the hero-outlaw paradox. Roger is, quite simply, 100% outlaw. The most damning, though, are his dates. 
we know by 1261 that the name Robin Hood was used as a pseudonym for an outlaw. Therefore, Roger is simply too late, as the earliest we can place him as an outlaw is in 1264, three years later. In my mind, though, there is no doubt that Roger may well have helped to develop the Robin Hood myth, especially his role in the Second Baron's War, his conflict with the King, and his connection with Nottinghamshire in general, and Sherwood Forest in particular. The next suspect is a name known by many, but with few ideas as to who he actually was. Hereward the Wake is a genuine historical hero. Jim Bradbury champions Hereward in his 2010 book, Robin Hood. Now, Bradbury identified the main source for Hereward. It's a book called The Deeds of Hereward. And Bradbury called it a 12th century work describing an 11th century hero discovered in a 13th century collection of legal works. The term wake probably means watchful. Hereward was a minor Anglo-Saxon landowner living in Lincolnshire who resisted the Norman conquest. On his father's orders, Hereward is exiled just before the Norman invasion of 1066 and his lands are given to one of the nouveau Norman rulers. On his return to England in 1066, Hereward becomes a focal point of English resistance in the Fenlands. Here, he avenges the death of his brother by killing 15 Norman knights and displaying their decapitated heads on the gates of his former home in Bourne in Lincolnshire. Hereward then escapes to the continent, only to return in 1070. He then becomes a national hero in his defence of Ely across 1070 and 1071. Hereward is portrayed as the leader of the Sylvatici, the free-born Englishman who were taken to the woods upon the invasion of the Normans. And as you remember, that's a term often associated with Robin himself. The Normans, under William the Conqueror, began a protracted siege of Ely, Hereward, in a story that predates the same story told of many Robin suspects, disguises himself as a potter to spy on the king's court. At other times, he disguises himself as a fisherman to gather intelligence on the movement of the king's troops. But then Hereward is betrayed by the Bishop of Ely, who, in exchange for keeping his lands, comes to term with William. Hereward retreats deep into the woodlands around Peterborough. All of William the Conqueror's resources are now devoted to the capture of Hereward, and that hunt is led by the Abbot of Peterborough. Now, he may well be a forerunner of the Bishop of Hereford, that we again will meet later. The escapades of Hereward include a lot of the tropes we see in the Robin Hood stories. The use of disguises, expert archer, shoeing his horse backwards. Hereward is eventually captured, but escapes from Ely in 1071 and disappears from history. Now, Hereward seems to fit perfectly into the precursor of Robin, a minor Anglo-Saxon noble whose lands are taken by a Norman usurper. Then a guerrilla war using many of the strategies and tactics of Robin. And in the book, there is also a ladle full of dark humour. To cap it all, Hereward seems to answer the hero-outlaw paradox that bedevils so many of our other suspects. But in my view, he is simply too early to be our original Robin. A full two centuries too early to be the Robin Hood of the ballads. But again, I think his story could easily have been used to create the myth of Robin. You begin to see how so many different characters could be funneled into the one person called Robin Hood. Our next contender is Fouque Fitzwarren. Glyn Burgess, in his book, 
two medieval outlaws, Eustace the Monk and Fouque Fitzwarine, that was published in 2009, summarise Fouque as, and I quote, a simple knight who defies his king, rises in revolt, gathers a band of outlaws, then he is pardoned, given what he rebelled against, and finally marries a rich widow. You can see some of the similarities to Robin. Now all the things we know about Fouque come from a late 13th century poem, The Romance of Fouque Fitzwarren. Fouque is described as a knight of the Welsh marches, who comes into dispute with King John in 1200 over the manor of Whittington in Shropshire. Because Fouque had been a close friend to his brother Richard, King John, who was portrayed as wicked, evil and hated by everyone, granted the manor to someone else. So from 1200 to 1203, Fouque and his men were in rebellion and tied down a much larger force sent to subdue the unrest, but in Shropshire, nowhere near Nottinghamshire. In 1203, John eventually pardons Fouque and on receipt of 200 marks, granted him possession of Whittington. During his rebellion, Fouque acts a lot like Robin. He waylays merchants and having taken all their goods, treats them to a hearty dinner. The proceeds from his crimes he shares with his retainers and he never harms anyone except the king's knights. Like Robin, Fouque also uses tricks to throw his enemies off his trail. Like Herod with the Wake, he shoes his horse backwards and so confuses the king's men they don't know if he's coming or going. Now the original poem on which we all know about Fouque is full of dark humour and violence with Fouque not being above dispatching bound prisoners with a stroke of his sword, or executing peasants who do not side with him. But there are many similarities with Robin's story, including the, the dates, the fact that King John is his enemy, and that Fouque and Richard were friends, and the partial resolution of the hero-outlaw paradox. But again, there are simply too many differences to make Fouque our original Robin. For instance, he is a knight, and the poem is couched in chivalric terms. It was written by a knight for knights to read. The concerns are nothing to do with a yeoman class. Perhaps most telling is that the first Robin Hood stories are not fantastical. But in the poem, Fook battles dragons and visits exotic locations and comes into contact with the Holy Grail. All of which Robin doesn't do. Robin's stories are always grounded in reality. So having seen these three, is there some other Robin, unknown to most historians, who may just be a better fit? Now, William of Kensham is an interesting character. He may well square the circle of identifying the real Robin Hood. William is championed by Sean McGlynn in his 2018 book, Robin Hood, A True Legend. William is a forest-dwelling, bow-wielding outlaw who just happens to fit with the timeline and resolve the hero-outlaw paradox. William was born in about 1195 and eventually becomes the warden of the 700s of the Weald of Kent. His story is told by Roger of Wendover in his early 13th century works, The Flowers of History. And from these works, we can deduce the fact that William died about 1257. William rose to fame in the long neglected French invasion of England in the aftermath of the signing of the Magna Carta. Just 12 months after the signing, so disgusted by John's arbitrary and despotic rule, the barons offered the crown to the heir of the French king, Prince Louis Capet, the future Louis VIII of France. Louis landed with his army in May 1216 
and John was soon cowering in the West Country, while Louis ruled half of England from Winchester up to Lincoln, with his capital in London. John's power base in the South had shrunk to just three key strategic points, Windsor Castle, Dover Castle and the Weald of Kent and Sussex. And it is in the Weald that William of Kensham found his new long-lost fame and the slightly unfortunate nickname, Willie Ken of the Weald. William was a warden of the forest and so had access to trained archers and woodsmen. And for 18 months from May 1216 until September 1217, this area of the country became his dominion. Here, in echoes of the later stories of Robin, the yeoman resistance fighter leads a force of about a thousand bowmen in defence of the rightful king. It's just that the king is John and not Richard. William ambushes French patrols and supply trains, making their way to the south coast ports and shares the proceeds from this with the local inhabitants. By all accounts though, William is also quite brutal, taking few prisoners and often decapitating those he does capture. Now William is lauded by contemporary chroniclers as a major figure in the conflict, and his actions were recognised by King John, who wrote to the people of the Weald of Kent in September 1216 and thanked them for their resistance. King John also subsidised William's efforts to continue the fight against the French. But John died in October 1216, and his nine-year-old son became Henry III, with that great English knight William Marshall as his regent. William of Kensham, however, remained steadfast in his loyalty to the English crown during this turbulent period, unlike many of the barons. One of William's most famous exploits was at the Siege of Winchelsea late in 1216. Rye had been taken by royalist troops, and so Louis set up camp at Winchelsea to build up his own troops and supplies ahead of besieging Rye. But once in Winchelsea, Louis was trapped. While the English flotilla blocked the harbour, William cut off all communication by land. William's fierce grip in the area and his bloody effectiveness saw Louis in a desperate situation. The French are supposed to have lost over a thousand men to William's small army before Louis was able to pierce the naval blockade and escape to France. But William wasn't done yet. When Louis returned in the spring of 1217, he made his way to the siege lines at Dover Castle, where the royalist garrison still held out against the French. But as Louis came into sight of the town, all he could see was smoke rising from the French camp. William, on hearing of Louis' advance, had launched a surprise attack. The French troops guarding the camp were driven off, and the camp reduced to a smouldering ruin. Louis now had to give up the siege and decamped to Sandwich, where he hoped to be able to disembark his troops in peace. Now, what was perhaps most amazing about this raid was that William led the attack with the bastard son of King John, Oliver Fitzroy, under his command. It shows the high regard William was held in that the ruling and yeomanry classes were happy working together for the common cause. Defeat at Lincoln in May as well as in a naval action off Sandwich in August, saw the end of Louis's ambitions, and he sued for peace, leaving England finally in September 1217. William was recognised by the Crown for his actions and loyalty throughout the 18-month invasion. He received the title of Warden of the Weald, as well as about 120 acres of land, an annual income, a pension for his wife upon his death, and elevation to the rank of squire. William perhaps more than any other contender, in my view, resolves the hero-outlaw paradox. 
a hero to the English royalty and to the common folk, an outlaw to the French and the barons who back Louis. But also the timing and location are important, for let's not forget that the first mention of Robin Hood comes from 1261 and is very much a southern tradition rather than a northern or midland one. Also, if Robin Hood was already known by the time William is active, then why is there nothing in the three extant sources of William's activities that liken him to Robin? After all, he was an outlaw, fighting for the rightful king, stealing from the French and giving his booty to the local population, the Weald. Now, is this reluctance to actually name him as Robin Hood in the, in the, in the Chronicles because William is the first Robin Hood? Personally, I think that's a stretch. In my view, Robin cannot be linked to any one individual, but rather he is a composite character built up from various real-life characters of the medieval period from about 1066 right the way through to 1260 and beyond. It is these historical figures, and others, who coalesced into our Robin Hood in the forms of the ballads and poems of the 13th and 14th centuries, before becoming ingrained in English folklore in literary sources of the 15th and 16th centuries. It is these stories that have then struck such a chord that has been passed down the years until it has become a favourite of TV and cinema in the 21st century. The second half of the talk really starts looking at some of the actual sources for Robin and how the myth has been transmitted down the centuries. We must now leave the historical search for Robin, for while it continues to create debate, there is far more heat than there is light. Instead, we will now look at the only concrete evidence we have for Robin, the ballads and plays of the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries. The ballads themselves emerge at a time of great upheaval, following the end of the Hundred Years' War and the start of the War of the Roses, when the labouring poor and the knightly retinues of the great captains were looking for entertainment, and a hero who could take on corrupt state officials, meet out violent justice, and all while winning the hand of the fair maiden, of course. For it is in these ballads and plays that is created the legend that is Robin Hood. There are five ballads that form the accepted canon of original Robin Hood ballads. They are Robin Hood and the Monk, Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham, Robin Hood and Guy of Gisborne, A Jest of Robin Hood, and Robin Hood and the Potter. Now the dates are the only ones that we can actually identify, but it is beyond doubt, certainly 14th and possibly 13th, and may even stretch into the 12th century. The main source for our legendary Robin is the ballad the jest of Robin Hood. It appears in the mid-15th century, but some historians, including Professor Sir James Holt, perhaps the preeminent Robin Hood historian, have argued for a date as early as the mid-13th century. The jest has been called, and I quote, the encyclopedia of the medieval legend of Robin Hood. In summary, the jest is based in Barnsdale in Yorkshire, with some forays into Sherwood Forest. It contains many of the themes that are familiar to us, and some that are not. For instance, there is the mandatory archery competition, the humiliation of the Sheriff of Nottingham, and the upbraiding of the church for being lovers of money rather than lovers of humanity. But interestingly, Robin is a moneylender as well as an outlaw, and the only allusion to Robin the rich and giving to the poor is one line where it's said that Robin 
is a good outlaw and did a poor man much good. Although the poor man in question is a knight and the much good is that Robin gave him the loan and expected it to be paid back with interest. Now perhaps more interestingly, the king in this tale is a King Edward rather than a King John. But which King Edward? The first, second, third or fourth? Now I believe that Edward IV is very much a long shot as it is too recent in comparison to the dates of the earliest canonical ballads. Edward II doesn't make much sense in the context of how the King Edward of the Jest is portrayed. In it, this King Edward indulges in macho knockabout banter. Edward II is far from macho in most history books. In my mind, that leaves us with only two possible contenders, Edward I and Edward III. Now, my money would be on Edward I as being the most likely, if we accept the contention that Robin may well be associated with the Second Baron's War. During the Second Baron's War, Edward I was then Prince of Wales, son of Henry III. These early ballads are a mixture of the serious and the comic, and they show us how Robin was first viewed. Very much the anti-hero, more thug than benevolent leader of the Merry Men. But it is difficult to identify any key characteristics, as he changes persona from one ballad to the next. In some he is serious, in others he is comic while he is both selfless and selfish by turn. While in some he appears to have some sort of moral code, in others he cheerfully kills and mutilates his victims. He is anti-church while being deeply religious. What he is not, I'm afraid, is that lovable rogue so common in the stories we are so familiar with. That is a very much 19th century invention, as we shall see later. So there are no answers, only hints in the ballads to identify who Robin may have been, nor do they do much to fill out Robin's backstory. There is no clue, for example, as to how Robin becomes an outlaw in the first place, but there are clues as to which class Robin belongs to, and that is because they skewer the myth that Robin was either an aristocrat, such as the Earl of Huntingdon, or a member of the gentry, such as Robin of Loxley. All the ballads clearly label Robin as a yeoman. Now that has a few definitions in the High Middle Ages, it could mean a freeholder farming his own land, a free servant in a royal or noble household, or a sergeant at arms, certainly not a member of the aristocracy or gentry. But what these ballads do do is locate Robin in either Sherwood Forest or Barnsdale Forest in Yorkshire. Now, as I said, there is no historical basis whatsoever for the location, but something clearly anchors Robin in this area. And I think that the reason for that is that it was around this area, possibly in Nottingham Castle, that the ballads were first composed. In my view, they used the local area in which the balladeers first wrote of an outlaw with heroic tendencies. The ballads were then performed the length and breadth of the country and so became ingrained in the folklore of England. They have survived to this day, forming the foundation for new folk tales incorporating the legend even into the 21st century. The ballads were known everywhere and soon became associated with a medieval celebration of May Day where the ballads were transformed into plays for the May Day fairs. It is in these later plays and ballads that several of the characters that we associate with Robin were first linked with the myth. For example, Robin and Marion became identified in May Day plays as the King and Queen of Misrule in 15th century celebrations. Many of the characters that have become synonymous with Robin 
such as Maid Marian and Friar Tuck, all started life as separate characters, having their own songs and plays. Then they were all brought together in new stories and are now linked forever. Who was Maid Marian? I'm afraid there is very little, if any, historical records to answer that question. In most 19th and 20th century stories, she is meek and mild, as befitted her virginal status. But today she is more likely to be represented as feisty and no man's fool. But where did she come from, and how did she become associated with Robin? The etymology of the word maid is interesting in and of itself, as it only appears in English in the late 12th and early 13th centuries, at about the same time as the early states associated with Robin. A maid was originally an unmarried woman, especially a virgin. In Marion's case, it is more likely she was originally a maid of honour, a lady-in-waiting, if you like, who attended the queen or princess. Marion is, in fact, an older folklore tale than Robin. Marion was queen of the May from the 14th century, long before Robin appears on the scene in May Day plays in the 15th century. Now, Marion as a name may well be associated with either the Virgin Mary or Mary Magdalene, and interestingly, she has been portrayed in some of the early ballads as either being virginal or perhaps even a prostitute. So where does Robin come into the story? The earliest plays that include Robin and Marion date from the early 1500s. In fact, in the original ballads, there is no love interest for Robin. Over time, though, this couple become romantically linked, perhaps because of a quite unconnected 13th century French tradition where the names Robin and Marianne were stock names in plays for a rural couple in love. It is probable that originally there were Marian plays and Robin plays, that over the course of time these morphed into one story, using that French tradition to link these star-crossed lovers into a single narrative. Now Marion commanded high respect in the Tudor period for her courage and independence, as well as her beauty and loyalty. For this reason, she is celebrated by many 21st century feminist commentators as one of the earliest strong female characters in English literature. Now, Friar Tuck does not appear in any of the early canonical ballads, but arrives much later in the 15th century. Despite how he's portrayed today, Tuck was not always fat, nor lazy, nor a drunk, but he was always a friar, which I'm afraid is another dagger in the heart for those who link Robin with the late 12th century, as there were simply no friars before the second decade of the 13th century. A friar is a member of the mendicant religious orders who worked directly with the people instead of being cloistered in monasteries and relied upon receiving alms from the local population. The earliest mendicant friars were members of the Dominicans or Franciscans, and these came into being in the 1220s. Friars simply did not exist in the time of Richard the Lionheart or King John. Now, Tuck first appears in May Day Entertainments and only in Tudor times leaps into the ballads and plays associated with Robin. But there was, in fact, a real-life Friar Tuck. A Sussex chaplain used this name in 1416. His armed gangs stole game animals across Surrey and Sussex and burned down the dwellings of crown servants such as foresters. So the name may well have been noted as being particularly unusual, and so then may have been used in the later stories as his notoriety spread, one of the only actual real-life connections to the Robin stories. You'll be glad to know that Robin's chief psychic has always been Little John. 
They were joined in the hip from the very earliest ballads as being fast friends and partners in crime. Now, just as there is no backstory as to how Robin became an outlaw, there is likewise no narrative as to how these two reprobates first met. I'm very sorry, but the story we all know that Robin and John first met while contesting a river crossing, contest decided by Robin besting little John with quarterstaffs, and in so doing, earning John's undying loyalty, is a 19th century addition to the myth. The use of the nickname Little John may come from a case in Kent, another southern connection. Because in Kent in 1313, a certain John of Shorn was charged with murder. His criminal nickname was Le Petit Jean, or Little John. And what of that band of brothers, the Merry Men? Surely some of these were with Robin from the first ballads. They can't all be later editions, can they? Well, fear not, because those famous Merry Men, David of Doncaster, Arthur Bland and Gilbert Whitehead, have all been with Robin as long as Little John. David who? Alan and Gilbert what? Well, their names don't exactly rip off the tongue, do they? Well, that trio may not be so well known, but another two early companions are much more familiar. Much the Miller's son and Will Scarlet are with Robin from the get-go. But I'm afraid you can forget much the Miller's son, because that Europe scallion, whose only crime was to poach a deer, in fact is a murderer of a young page boy in Robin Hood and the Monk, one of those five canonical ballads. Will Scarlet has always been an interesting character, and one of the most consistent as to how he's been portrayed. As usual, there isn't a large backstory, but there's more to Will than most. Now, Will seems to be some sort of relation to Robin. A half-brother or nephew seems to be the most common idea, and as the years have progressed, he seems to become a conniving backstabber where Robin is concerned. And I'm afraid you can forget him being dressed in red. His surname originally was Scathlock, which has morphed over the years into Will Scarlet. Whatever their relationship, Will, like the rest of the Merry Men, is bonded by his criminality rather than for any search for justice, defence of the rightful king, and certainly not in the pursuit of Marion's hand. And Alan Adale, the troubadour? Well, he's even a later addition to the story. He doesn't appear until the 17th century as one of several new merry men, but only Alan survives to this day, possibly because it was a useful narrative to have a wandering minstrel to sing the ballads and narrate the stories in the later plays. So if you can call this gang of cutthroats the heroes, who are the villains of the piece? You'll be glad to know that all the earliest ballads named the three baddies in our tale. The Sheriff of Nottingham, the Bishop of Hereford and Guy of Gisborne. All three have a role to play in the telling of the story and represent the threats that the Saxons, yeomanry and peasantry faced in the High Middle Ages. The Sheriff represents the overweening power of the state. The Bishop, the corrupt Catholic Church intent on becoming rich at their parishioners' expense. And Guy, the brutal justice the Saxons would face if they transgressed Norman laws. Sheriffs were appointed to every county in the kingdom. By the reign of Edward I, these posts were no longer sinecures for royal favourites and were measured on how much revenue they could raise for the crown through the collection of taxes. They were also ordered to maintain royal property, including the royal forests, by the strict imposition of the forest laws. And for the stories of Robin Hood, they also held one other important role to play, the maintenance of law and order by rooting out outlaws. Of course, Robin's arch enemy is the Sheriff of Nottingham, 
Robin's rivalry with Prince John is a much later addition. But there is a problem with the sheriff. Most scholars place the origins of Robin Hood to be somewhere in the rough 100 years between the early 13th to the mid 14th century. Unfortunately, the title Sheriff of Nottingham didn't exist until the middle of the 15th century, just as the early ballads and plays came into existence. But if there wasn't a Sheriff of Nottingham, there was someone who could have been mistaken as such, and that was the High Sheriff of Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire and the Royal Forests. Now what I find interesting is that the Sheriff is never actually named in any of the ballads, so it doesn't help us to narrow down the when Robin was supposed to be active. The Sheriff is in many ways the nameless representation of the corrupt system who ground down the population by unfair laws and high taxation. And even more interestingly, in some of the early tales, he isn't even identified as the Sheriff of Nottingham, rather is referred to as just the Sheriff, making him very much the symbol of a nationwide repression. Why the early ballad writers chose to make the Bishop of Hereford Robin's main religious enemy is, I'm afraid, lost to history. Throughout the 12th to 14th centuries, there was always a Bishop of Hereford. So why was that specific bishopric chosen to represent church corruption? My thoughts are that the See of Hereford was across this time an extremely wealthy part of the country, and it is possible that one of the bishops may have had a reputation for corruption, who grew rich on the backs of the local Saxon population. In fact, if we do have a Bishop of Hereford, who some historians have suggested, then it may well be a guy called Adam Alton. Now, Adam Alton was an unpopular Bishop of Hereford in the reigns of Edward II and Edward III. He was even charged with treason in 1322. Later, Alton supported the rebellion by Edward II's wife Isabella and her lover Roger Mortimer. Alton even encouraged Edward II to give up his throne, and he may even have been involved in the former king's murder. So you can see how he may well have become associated with the Bishop of Hereford. If the Sheriff was Robin's main enemy, then it was the Sheriff's strong arm who was often Robin's direct foe. In the earliest stories, Guy isn't Sir Guy, as he would later be called, but rather a yeoman, the same class as Robin, but of Norman rather than Saxon blood. Interestingly, in the earliest story where Guy is mentioned, he's based in Yorkshire rather than within the area controlled by the Sheriff of Nottingham. But in all the ballads, Guy is killed by Robin and is mutilated to hide the identity of his corpse, which allows Robin to enter the Sheriff's camp, disguised as Guy. As to who Guy was, it's completely unknown to history as there is no Guy of Gisborne in any historical reference that any of the historians I've quoted can find. So by the middle of the Tudor period, the early ballads and the plays have become part of the folklore of the country. Maid Marian, Friar Tuck and Little John are all present and correct. Robin, the Saxon yeoman, is the leader of the Merry Men. But then, as the Tudor period enters the last decades of the 16th century, something strange happens. Robin, the heart of oak, Saxon yeoman, scourge of the Norman aristocracy, suddenly becomes Robin, the Earl of Huntingdon. Why? In part, because Robin was too subversive for the Tudors and later the Stuarts. Both the Tudors and the Stuarts always sat uneasy on the throne. And who wanted a member of the Saxon underclass fermenting discontent and advocating overthrowing the crown, even if it was only a story? So rather than a Saxon yeoman taking on the Norman aristocracy, how much safer would it be if the story was that Robin was a member of the aristocracy, fighting corruption 
and disloyalty to the rightful king. But why the Earl of Huntingdon in particular? Because the Earl fitted quite nicely with Robin having Saxon origins. The Earldom of Huntingdon was created in Saxon times, and unusually, the original Saxon family held on to that title post 1066. That line had become extinct in 1237, which left plenty of scope for the later 15th and early 16th century playwrights to wield considerable artistic license involving lost sons and lost inheritances. Robin is in fact first associated with the Earl of Huntingdon in two plays by Anthony Mundy. Now Mundy lived between 1560 and 1633 and was a contemporary of Shakespeare and he even co-wrote some plays with Shakespeare. Of interest to us though are the two plays Mundy wrote between 1597 and 1598. The Downfall of Robert Earl of Huntingdon and The Death of Robert Earl of Huntingdon. In these plays Mundy took the May Day plays that featured Robin, Marianne et al, and turned Robin from yeoman to noble. Mundy gives Robin a proper backstory for the first time. He has been robbed of his lands and driven into the forest by a corrupt system and must fight for its inheritance. It was in plays like these, written across the end of the 15th and early 16th centuries, that Robin became associated with robbing the rich and giving to the poor. So where did that concept come from? As we enter the 16th century, Robin Hood becomes the poster boy for all those things that the Tudors, and later the Stuart aristocracy, wanted to be seen to embody. Hospitality, generosity, Christianity, and of course loyalty to the crown. It is therefore likely that the concept of robbing the rich and giving the poor may, unlikely as it seems, have been a favourite of the aristocracy themselves. They did not perceive themselves as being the enemy of the poor, as no one imagines themselves as being a villain. But there is also another reason why this idea may have gained traction with the aristocracy of the time, and that is the fact that Robin often steals from the pre-Reformation Catholic Church. The new audience for these late 16th and early 17th century plays that extols Robin's redistribution of wealth are the second generation of the nobility who gained church lands and wealth seized by Henry VIII during the Reformation. These newly rich Tudor landlords were looking to excuse their own land grab. Another reason for the switch in emphasis from yeoman to noble is Robin's association with the longbow. Why is Robin an expert archer? Because it's the weapon of the Saxon peasantry. With this weapon, the English and Welsh archers across the Hundred Years' War brought down the cream of the French nobility at Cresse, Poitiers and Agincourt. But to the English nobility, it was a threat thrust at the heart of their position. It was a potent symbol of the power of the peasantry, and as such a boon to the balladeers and storytellers of the late 14th and 15th centuries. But to the 16th and 17th century playwrights, it is ladled with danger. Far better to associate Robin with the burgeoning middle classes as a lower nobleman than a potentially rebellious yeoman. Now, in the interest of time, we must now move from the medieval to the beginnings of the modern age. The first 19th century writer to focus on Robin Hood was W.B. Yeats in his 1818 poem, Robin Hood, to a friend. This elegiac poem mourns the passing of Robin's world, the passing of a lost golden age. Yeats's Robin isn't the embodiment of thigh-slapping, light-hearted courage. This Robin is crippled with sadness for the old ways are gone, 
and will come no more. This echoes many early 19th century writers as they view the dark future of modernity and industrialization. But just two years later, another author would revolutionize the way Robin was portrayed. Without doubt, Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe is the most important piece of work involving Robin in the last 200 years, because it is Scott who created the Robin we know today. Ivanhoe was published in 1820 and brought important changes to the Robin Hood story. It cemented Robin as a lovable rogue, introduced him as Robin of Loxley, set Robin firmly in the 12th century with Richard and John at loggerheads, and finally, while Robin had always been an expert archer, it was Scott who introduced that most identifiable of Robin tropes, the splitting of an arrow in an archery competition. Scott took Robin's already well-known reputation as a trickster, but this Robin, as a jolly thief holding court with his merry men, is very much Scott's own. His Robin is a master of disguise, who plays tricks on friend and foe alike, and seems to take as much pleasure in tricking them as he does in killing them. While the earlier ballads clearly portray Robin as an anti-hero and a scoundrel, for Scott Robin is, and I quote, the king of outlaws and prince of good fellows. The new backstory for Robin is set in 1194, very much in the time of Richard the Lionheart and Prince John. Robin is no longer just Robin of the Hood, but Robin of Loxley, a Saxon noble. At heart, Ivanhoe was a story of Saxon versus Norman, or more accurately, evil Norman Prince John and his entourage versus loyal Saxon Ivanhoe, with some help from Robin. Ivanhoe was the first novel to feature Robin Hood. Novels were a new phenomenon and were long read by a growing audience of the literate middle and working classes. They were also written in the vernacular, which connected the audience with a growing interest in the myths and legends of Britain. As the Industrial Revolution progressed, there was a wish in many to protect and to revive rural traditions. Ivanhoe, with its yearning for a lost pastoral epoch, promoted a view of a noble, pre-modern Britain. So Ivanhoe became the blueprint for other 19th century authors, and Robin became fixed in the psyche of the nation. And these tales were further embellished by our next author, Howard Pyle. Pyle was an American, and his 1883 book, called, by the very pithy title, The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood of Great Renown in Nottinghamshire, brought a coherent narrative to Robin's tales that was aimed at children, not unlike what T.H. White would do for King Arthur in The Once and Future King. But Pyle did much more, because his illustrations formed a visual representation of Robin that would be used by Hollywood into the 20th and 21st centuries. If Pyle's chivalrous patriot be decked in Lincoln Green, play to the child, then our next 19th century author, Francis James Child, took it and applied a more serious bent to the works. Between 1882 and 1898, Child, another American, published a collection entitled English and Scottish Popular Ballads. Of the 300 plus ballads featured in the collection, 38 of them deal directly with Robin Hood. Child's work has become a major contribution to the study of English language folk music. Now, both Pyle's and Child's work made Robin's story easily accessible to the growing working class and formed a bridge from the written word to the moving pictures that would appear in the early decades of the 20th century. The modern era has been prolific for Robin Hood. Since his first appearance on the silver screen in 1908, Robin has appeared on numerous occasions, 
By my reckoning, Robin has appeared in well over 130 films and TV series. Many of these stories rely heavily on Sir Walter Scott. But in the 21st century, we're beginning to see a grittier, more historically accurate portrayal. In books, Robin has, in my opinion, been poorly served since Pyle and Scott in the early 19th century. A refreshing change, though, has been that in several books, such as Scarlet and Robin, Lady of the Legend, male characters have become female, offering a differing view on the role of women in the 13th century. By far the most interesting, though, is King Raven, a trilogy written by Stephen R. Lawhead. A renowned historical fantasy author, Lawhead, yet another American, with a love of Celtic and early British history, reimagines Robin as a Welsh archer in the time of William II, between 1087 and 1100. This Robin is a Celt whose lands are being taken by the Normans as they spread into the Welsh marches in the aftermath of the Norman invasion. A well-researched series of books that actually represent its time, but in my opinion rather let itself down by flirting with some of the more supernatural elements in British folklore. Now Robin on the telly. Robin made his first appearance on the box in 1953 with Patrick Troughton playing Robin. and There have been many appearances since. I have chosen just three to focus on. The Adventures of Robin Hood, and no, I'm not going to sing the theme song, was a British television series comprising 143 half-hour black-and-white episodes, broadcast weekly between 1955 and 1959, and repeated ad nauseum across the 60s. It starred Richard Green as Robin Hood and Alan Wheatley as the Sheriff of Nottingham. While some of the episodes dramatised the traditional Robin stories, most were original dramas created by the show's writers. The Adventures of Robin Hood was produced by American, uh, yet another American, Hannah Weinstein, and explicitly created by her to enable the commissioning of scripts by blacklisted American communist writers. They couldn't find work in the US. The blacklisted writers were credited under pseudonyms to avoid the attention of studio executives. While a couple of the episodes are pointedly anti-capitalist in tone, most are non-political, apart from an extremely heavy emphasis on robbing the rich and giving to the poor. Robin of Sherwood was a British television series that ran from 1984 to 1986, starring Michael Prade as Robin of Loxley. He dies at the end of series two, and is replaced by Jason Connery, son of Sean, as Robert of Huntingdon. Unlike previous adaptations of the Robin legend, Robin of Sherwood combined a gritty, authentic production design with elements of history, 20th century fiction and a dollop of pagan mythology. It has, however, been described by historian Stephen Knight as, and I quote, the most innovative and influential version of the myth. The series is also notable for its musical score by Clannad, which won a BAFTA award. However, its most innovative change to the Robin story was the introduction of a Saracen character. Many subsequent films and TV series have included such a character. Now, Maid Marian and Her Merry Men was a children's TV show originally shown between 1989 and 1994, which completely rewrote the legend, with Marian as a dynamic leader of the resistance against Prince John and Robin as her thick-headed, cowardly, buffoonish figurehead. It was created and written by Tony Robinson of Time Team and Blackadder fame. Kate Lonergan played Marion as a freedom fighter, who is by far the most intelligent member of the gang. 
but her idealism blinds her to the realities of the situation, most notably the sheer incompetence of Robin and the Merry Men. Now at the movies, there is only one place to start. The Adventures of Robin Hood remains one of my all-time favourite films. Released in 1938, it is perhaps the epitome of pre-war Hollywood and cost an unprecedented $2 million at the time. Directed by Michael Curtis and William Keithley and filmed in vivid Technicolor, it of course starred Errol Flynn. Flynn's performance set the benchmark for all future Robins. It was a swashbuckling adventure with lots of swinging from trees and chandeliers and what is considered, even to today, the best cinematic sword fight in history between Robin and the evil Guy of Gisborne, this time played by that great actor, Basil Rathbone. The supporting actors were truly magnificent, with Claude Rains as Prince John, Alan Hales as Little John, and Olivia de Havilland as Maid Marian. Stylistically, the film owned a great deal to the artwork of Howard Pyle. It was illustrations from his book, that served as the inspiration for the look of the scenery and the costumes. And in turn, this film has also been the inspiration for other films and TV series, including, believe it or not, Disney's Robin Hood. For many children, this remains the introduction into the world of Robin Hood. The characters are all reimagined as anthropomorphic animals, with Robin as a fox, who was supposed to be voiced by Tommy Steele, but whose voice wasn't considered sufficiently heroic. Produced and directed by Wolfgang Reifmann, it was the 21st Disney animated film and the first entirely post-Walt animated feature. It has grossed approximately $40 million in the 49 years since its release and there are rumours of a live-action remake to be released sometime in the mid-2020s. In my opinion, second only to Errol Flynn, is perhaps Kevin Cosner's rendition of Robin Hood in Prince of Thieves, released in 1991. Also starring Morgan Freeman, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio and the scene-stealing Alan Rickman, it had a mixed critical reception but was a massive box office hit, taking nearly $400 million. Freeman and Rickman won accolades for their performances and who can ever forget Brian Adams' hit, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, which was number one in 19 countries and spent 16 weeks at number one in the UK. The idea of a rich, spoiled kid who became a better man following his imprisonment in Jerusalem, was an interesting take on the traditional Robin myth, even though Robin, as a return crusader, was first introduced by Scott in Ivanhoe. The film Robin Hood, released in 2010, starred Russell Crowe as Robin, Kate Blanchlett as Marion, and William Hurt as William Marshall. Now this is a remarkably interesting study of the Robin myth. Directed by Ridley Scott, the film was subjected to several rewrites before finally becoming based on the French invasion of 1216, and the beginnings of the Robin Hood story. Crow plays Robin Longstride, a common archer, with an accent that is either Yorkshire or Australian, depending on the scene. <laughs> he is present at the death of Richard the Lionheart at Shalou, and in a series of adventures brings news of his death to England. Robin then joins forces with the great knight Sir William Marshall to prevent the French invasion. There are obviously echoes of William of Kensham in the story, even though it ends with King John still alive and fearing for his throne, declaring Robin as an outlaw. It was open to a sequel, but as of 2022, there is no sign. It took $320 million at the box office, but did not make a massive profit. Even so, it is classed as one of the best performing Robin Hood films in history.
So why is Robin Hood such an enduring figure? The ideological roots of this may be found in the old Saxon kingdoms. Robin has been identified with the Saxons from the early stories, and this fascination may be tied to the traditions of common law, trial by jury, and the long road towards parliamentary democracy. The story of Robin Hood as it developed became one of Saxon versus Norman, of freedom loving Saxons versus absolute monarchy and serfdom. Of course, this fascination with the Saxons completely forgets that the Saxons were once the interlopers who subjugated older and maybe even better ideas of society. Robin and his stories need to be viewed as a form of dissent against taxation and an overbearing state. Therefore, King John becomes the big bad in Robin's story because his taxation policies provoked the revolt of the barons and that led to the Magna Carta. Therefore, to later nobles, Robin's descent is legitimised by his siding with the nobility against King John. It also explains why Robin morphs from Saxon yeoman to Saxon nobility in some of the tales. It also explains why being called Robin Hood was a compliment to the Saxon population and an insult used by the Norman nobility well into the 14th century and beyond. In fact, it is only by the 16th century that Robin becomes acceptable to both peasant and prince. And from the 16th century, the stories become more fixed on justice, honour and resistance to corruption and the abuse of power by an overbearing state. Throw in a new concept of robbing the rich to give to the poor, and you have in Robin a hero of both the left and the right. Robin is, and will remain therefore, a man for all seasons. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History and Medieval History Groups. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.